The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That's gracebible.faith. So if you remember a few weeks ago, I was sharing that on a Wednesday night, I asked Eric, I think this might turn into one or two week introductions, and he signals two. Um, and he's close. And I am in the text this time. We are in Philippians now. So before we were broad and uh, giving a larger overview, but now we have landed in the text. But again, by way of introduction, as it were, but Paul is introducing the book. So we're just joining him now. So this is our third week of introducing Philippians. And in our first week, we worked through a, a number of things. We worked through the, the historical background. We worked through the epistolatory background, and, and with that, we gave special attention to the fact that this is a friendship exhortation letter written as to a friend or friends with whom uh, one is trying to persuade or dissuade from a matter, and that is full of examples. So that really helps shapes a lot of the, the tone and trajectory of the letter. And finally, the book's flow and development by way of examining an annotated outline of the whole of the book. So basically annotated outline was just me taking an outline and talking exhaustively about it until we finally just came to a conclusion. But I wanted you to see how it's knit together because uh, there is a continuity and there's an aim to it. So one of the, the not as big of a critique as we saw with James, but a soft critique was in the letter being a friendship letter that, well, Paul was writing as you would to a friend. And so maybe the conversation started here and it went over here and it developed this way. But there wasn't necessarily an aim. We don't come into our conversations usually with, here's my objective. And if they say something, it's okay, we're going to course correct. We're going to get to our objective. But I would argue that ultimately Paul did have an aim. And so we, we wanted to see that continuity and flow. So historical background, epistolatory background, and the book's flow and development. And then last week, um, in our second week, we worked through the book's major themes and gave special attention to three primary ones. So there was a number of major themes and uh, ones that, we certainly needed to give special attention to, one of them obviously being his focus on Christ. He gave us an abundant amount of material in terms of the person and work of Christ, but we also identified really three uh, kind of core themes, and we gave them special attention. Those were joy, which establishes the letter's tone. I would argue that's not necessarily the aim or uh, primary focus of the book. It is the tone of the book. If you, if you take joy out of the book, you, you've lost Philippians. But he wasn't writing so as to drive you to joy. Joy would be a means and a tone, and, and it would certainly be indispensable. But that's, that being said, very, very important. But it was really the next two and them together that constituted our primary thrust of the book. They kind of centered the other themes, and that was the combination of unity and mind. Now, under mind or thinking, we had unity of mind or thinking, but then as the letter develops, it obviously has a lot of other expressions of unity, and so I gave it more attention. So those two themes kind of center the other major themes, unity and mind, which again will bring us to the book's primary aim. And with this, we concluded that Paul wrote to affirm and strengthen the unity of a joyful fellowship, a unity that is becoming of Christ's church, and notably a unity of mind. And so we still have that, that really important element of joy, but it's knitting together that unity. And what kind of unity? Specifically, a unity of mind. It wants us to think alike, to think the same way in the Lord. It's not necessarily going to mean we agree in all things at all times. I think the Apostle Paul would have a preference toward more doctrinal continuity than we presently have, but such is the nature as the church grows and 
time and, and like matters, things are going to be more challenging in those regards. But he wanted a unity of mind, specifically unity of mind in the Lord. So we've worked to provide our introduction to the book. And now we're going to turn our attention to the introduction of the book. So again, we've done our introduction to the book, getting us to Philippians, giving us a big picture. Now we're going to work through the introduction of the book, namely chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Paul writes as follows. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all because of your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, some of you will remember that about a month ago, Pastor Matt was walking us through another book's introduction, namely Galatians. And at that time, he demonstrated that the introduction to Galatians was different from Paul's common pattern of writing. It was necessarily more intense, even really abrasive, on account of the nature of the letter and the weight of pastoral anxiety that marked its tone. Now, Philippians, by contrast, maintains a fairly close pattern to what we'd expect of Paul's letters. There's an identification of both the author and primary recipients. There's an opening blessing, some variation of grace and peace. It will change a little bit in different letters, but there's that core, grace and peace. And there's an expression of thanksgiving followed by prayer. So again, we have the introduction and the identification of the author and the recipients, an opening blessing of grace and peace, an expression of thanksgiving, and then prayer. However, this letter's introduction does have some notable distinctions to it as well. Paul makes no reference to his apostleship and appears to give an elevated equating of identities between himself and Timothy. And while addressing the whole church, he goes to address the leadership too. All matters that we're going to give some measure of attention to this morning. And what I hope, um, and what I hope we'll better appreciate when we finish our time today is not only how Paul begins his introduction, but also the two identities that shaped both the author and his readers. They're just as fit now to shape us as well as we also pursue a joyful unity of mind in the Lord. So again, a very common introduction, a few changes, but what are we hoping to land with today? What are we hoping to um, establish and walk away with? Well, I want you to see that the two identities that shaped both the author and his readers, they're just as fit for us today as, again, we pursue our own joyful unity of mind in the Lord. And that is that of slaves and saints. Slaves and saints, the principal characters of this letter. But we need not miss that those identities are qualified by the principal character of this letter, Christ Jesus. So it is slaves of Christ Jesus and saints in Christ Jesus. And with this in view, we're prepared to begin engaging the text by first noting the introduction of the letter's author. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. Now, I stated that, uh, excuse me, I stated that this, is, uh, this was the introduction of the author, not authors. And yet, you can look at your copy of the scriptures, you can follow along with me, and you'd note that it's Paul and Timothy. But again, it's the introduction of the author. And yet, again, it would appear that Timothy has attributed some credit here. But what kind of credit and for what reason? 
Well, first, to be clear, Paul wrote the letter. That's actually among the things that critics love to go after. This is a time that they're not going after Pauline authorship. And he quickly shifts to the singular and a heavy autobiographical tone in the letter. So while he does give a joint introduction, as it were, he very quickly goes to the first person. And again, he's very autobiographical. I'm joyful. I'm praying. I'm struggling. I'm sharing these things. And I want you to think these ways. Further, Timothy is not referenced to again except when speaking to his forthcoming visit to the Philippians in chapter 2. And it was plainly a matter spoken to by Paul. However, Timothy was not a stranger to the Philippians. He was present in the first days of the gospel coming to the city as he was Paul's ministry companion along with Silas, but it would appear that he did not have a very public role as he did not get brought in on the charges that led to the unexamined arrest of the others. So we know Paul, Silas, and Timothy, and it wasn't a situation such as we saw with John Mark where Paul's discouraged or frustrated by his uh, engagement and conduct on the ministry teams that were going back home. It wasn't those matters, but apparently he didn't elevate his attention or wasn't uh, drawing enough attention to himself so as to be um, exa- excuse me, arrested without examination in like matters such as Paul and Silas were. It's also speculated that he accompanied Paul or perhaps even made other trips to Philippi in the course of his larger service to the churches and as one who was a co-laborer with Paul. So he was with Paul in the beginning, which is very important with Paul. He talks about from the beginning of the gospel coming to you, and and you've labored with me from the beginning. Timothy was there with him. And it's also speculated that there was a high likelihood that he joined Paul on other trips to Philippi or that he also went to Philippi himself. But whatever the history may have been between his first journey to Philippi and the one that was planned, it was testified by Paul that that Timothy had a great affection for this fellowship. So it may well have been that Timothy stands as one who was in clear accord with Paul as he wrote this letter, and that it would be these very matters that he would go on to testify to and seek to see through when he comes to them. And so again, he has a like heart for the Philippians. Paul establishes that very clearly in chapter 2. And so it may be that being with Paul, he's affirming, I, I stand by this. I, it was as good as though I am signing off on the letter myself and mindful that he is soon to go to the Philippians it would be a good thing for him to say, I've endorsed everything in this letter. I understand it, and I'm of a like accord with Paul in these matters. So once more, Paul is plainly the author, the singular author of this letter. And while these other matters that we have spoken to are worthy of considering, perhaps the more unique matter was the shared identity that he chose to take on with Timothy, that of slaves of Christ. Now, That may not appear especially unique, but consider a few things. First, Paul identifies himself as an apostle in all of his letters, with the exception of 1 and 2 Thessalonians, Philemon, and here in Philippians. All the other letters, he mentions his apostleship in some form or another. But never does he express that he is a slave and not also include that he's an apostle. So if he introduces himself as a slave of Christ Jesus, as a slave of God, he always accompanies it with, I'm also an apostle. He doesn't do that here. He also distinguished himself by way of identity and authorship and other introductions in which he included a companion's name, including Timothy. The exception, again, being the letters to the Thessalonians where no titles were used, only a list of names by way of shared introduction. So again, anytime that you see Paul and, he tends to distinguish himself. Paul the apostle and the brothers. Paul, one who's labored among you 
and so and so and so and so. He always distinguishes himself in some form or another. The exception, again, being the letter to the Thessalonians, where it's just name, 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 and then he goes into the introduction. Now, while such matters may appear a little nuanced, uh, the point is that Paul is giving a somewhat minimalistic statement of his identity, and he's sharing a title with a companion in a way that he does not do anywhere else. It's almost a mixture of a more relaxed engagement and a leveling of standing between himself and Timothy, effectively recognizing that both men ought to be just viewed as slaves, that is, slaves of Christ Jesus. So no matter the fact that Paul is an apostle set apart by the Spirit of God to advance the gospel to the Gentiles, and Timothy is a faithful young man, albeit his, faith, his son in the faith, but Paul, who invited him also to join him on his second missionary journey, he's effectively set those matters aside in this introduction, the way he equates the two men. These matters are not of interest in this moment. They are slaves of Christ, and such is how Paul would have them both viewed. That and that only. Now, many of you were with us when we introduced the book of James. That was about 10 months ago now. And we discussed this matter of also identifying himself as a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ as he introduced his letter. But we also observed the introductions of 2 Peter and Jude too. So we recognize that this is a, a common way of introduction. Now, for James, it was unique because he was the half-brother of Jesus, and he doesn't take any claim to that. Jude as well. And these men here, their, their relationship has changed from being able to say, yes, I grew up in his home, and I grew up in a context of uh, and having influence in his life in some form or another in terms of a familial relationship, but that's not on the table. I'm a slave of Christ Jesus. And so those relationships changed. And, and Peter, obviously, he, he labored alongside Jesus and he, he loved his Lord, but he recognized, I'm a slave of Christ Jesus. So we, we've seen this pattern over the course of our, again, our last three books that we've, we've worked through with three different authors. They've all shared this one singular element of identity, that of being slaves of Christ Jesus or slaves of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Even so, Taking the willful identity of a slave is often difficult for us to hear because the term slave it reasonably carries with it some difficult baggage, much of it being introduced by cultural experiences that by the standards of history were not especially long ago. That was actually, that's actually led to many English translations softening the term here. A lot of your Bibles will have servants or maybe, maybe they'll have slave, but it'll be bond slave or even bond servant. And while translation work is extremely difficult, and has to bear in mind many things, I'm convinced we would do well to let the term just stand as it does, as slave. And we do this recognizing that men rarely make for good lords or masters. And while the range of expression that slavery took in the history of the scriptures was rather broad, it was not especially attractive by our modern sensibilities. Some had it well and others did not. But the term has value for what it communicates. Because while men rarely make for good lords or masters, we could not have a more perfect lord or master than Christ. And if we still find ourselves struggling here, I'd remind you now and again in just a moment that each and every one of us will always have a master. Maybe not a man, but we will always have a master. Our master will either be sin or it will be Christ. There's not a mediating or, or third option here. And you're not the exception. None of us are. And if we properly understood the lordship of Christ, we would run from any second, third, fourth, fifth option. 
Now, that being said, we, we prize our autonomy, or probably should say our illusion of autonomy, when there is but one path to freedom. A matter that Jesus spoke to rather plainly in John chapter 8. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. Sounds familiar. You might think, oh, that was Paul said that in Romans 6. Well, he's echoing Jesus here in John 8. You sin, you are a slave of sin. You're a slave of that which you uh, bring yourself under. And he continues on, And the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you'll be free indeed. John 8, 34 to 36. So once more, if you commit sin, and you do, I don't, I don't read your mail, I don't go through your life and business, probably your public life is more polished than your life of struggling with sin. But we know we've all fallen and drifted and strayed towards sin. And as such, there's the prospect of, are we slaves of sin? Because that's the nature of those who sin. And we are unless and until our slavery has been transitioned. So sin is the, the pattern of those who are slaves of sin. Sin is your master. And what do we know from sin, or what do we know about sin from James? Well, as you hopefully recall, James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, we could summarize our relationship with sin and the choice to sin and the pursuit and path of sin this way. Sin will kill you. There's no, there's no getting out of that. Sin will kill you. It always destroys, always takes. It will kill you and condemn you to an eternally righteous judgment. And then here's the qualification. But if the Son makes you free, that is free from the power and penalty of sin, even from death by way of resurrection into life, then you will be free indeed. But as we know, again, Romans 6, it's a freedom to become slaves now of righteousness. A freedom secured by way of the humble obedience of the Son, even obedience unto death, which was soon followed by his exaltation by the Father, a full exaltation to come, an exaltation that unequivocally declares, what? Christ's lordship. That he is master over all. And a master that is gracious and good and kind to those who submit to him in faith and repentance. To those who are, as we've stated and affirmed, slaves of Christ Jesus, bringing themselves under his full and perfect care and lead. And this is where Paul would have our attention directed in such matters, to the esteeming of Christ as Lord. He has not identified himself as a slave of Christ so that we would grovel about as we bemoaned our, about our distaste of such an identity. That's a rather short-sighted and self-indulgent problem to say, well, I didn't want to be a slave of anybody. Why do I have to be, a, I don't want to be a slave of sin, but I don't want to be a slave of Christ. Why do I got to be a slave? That's not where Paul's directing us. No, he's so introduced himself that we might be pressed to the glory of Christ's lordship and, with this in view, have a clear course of conduct and thinking for ourselves. So let's consider a few expressions of Christ's lordship from Philippians. The first of them, having already been alluded to, chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, where we plainly see that Christ's lordship is sure. It is ultimately a matter of how we are brought under it, and my exhortation to you would be, not, would be to bend the knee now with humility and joy. So we read, Therefore, God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
And so there will be a full and final submission. The lordship of Christ is not something that's going to be escaped. It's whether or not we submit willfully and joyfully, or we're going to hold on to another slavery, as it were. Later, we see Paul's valuation of what would have appeared to be a rather superior religious resume. All such matters are lost in view of knowing knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. He states in Philippians 3.8, More than that, I count all things to be lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my buddy. No, more than that, I count all things to be lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, that I may gain Christ. And just a little further into chapter 3, we see Paul expressing our blessed hope by way of our Lord's final glorious work in his people, his slaves. Philippians 3, 20 to 21, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory, by his working through which he is able to, to even subject all things to himself. So it's rather curious that someone would declare Jesus as their Savior, but not their Lord, because the two are inseparable. There's no distinction that you can drive there. And he just will not have it. Or perhaps even more perplexing is the one that would declare, yes, Jesus is Lord, but I'm not going to be a slave. That's, that language is too much. That demands too much, that implies too much, and I just don't particularly care for it. I don't think that that's necessary. It reminds me of children playing King of the Hill, fighting to ascend to the top and then scrapping, shoving, and otherwise to maintain their place because there can only be one king at the top, right? That's how you win the game. You stay on top. That's the only way. It's not, it's not uh, uh, Kings of the Hill. It's not king and second tier. It's the king of the hill. And you're going to push and fight and shove and otherwise to maintain that role and that identity because there can only be one king, one Lord. And so it is in reality as well. And if that king or that Lord be Christ, then you cannot be. And the nature of this relationship is not that of friends to the king, but slaves, those who subject their wills, their thoughts, and conduct in service to the king. Now let's take just a moment to look at a few passages that might help us flesh out our thinking about this relationship of lords and slaves. We see in Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 to 13, And when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I'm not good enough for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this man, go. And he goes. And to another, come. And he comes. And to my slave, do this. And he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very moment. Did you track with that conversation? A slave does the will of his master. That's the expectation, not just in the practices of life, but in terms of the lordship of Christ. 
This is not a matter of discussion or argument or otherwise. Romans chapter 6, verses 16 to 19. Do you not know that when you go on presenting yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, your slaves are the one whom you obey, either of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching to which you were given over, and having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. So again, you are a slave of who or what you obey. If a slave of righteousness, which is to say a slave of Christ, what is the expectation? The expectation is you obey. That's what slaves do. We obey. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 to 9. Slaves, be obedient to, your master, to those who are your masters according to the flesh. That's your natural context. With fear and trembling and the integrity of your heart, as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. That's what we do. Serving with good will as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters, do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven. And there is no partiality with him. So here we have a, a crossover, as it were. Instructions to those who are slaves of natural men, but also slaves of Christ. And what were they to do? Well, like every last one of us, they were to be doing the will of God from the heart, knowing that our heavenly master is good, he is just, and he is kind, and he brings with him our reward. Now, some of you may be thinking that if I'm right, then I'm right. But might Paul have been speaking not so much of a, a righteous servitude in this way and more of a, an esteemed title? Because we've already put on the table that he doesn't mention apostleship. He doesn't mention any form of leadership or formal identity. And so might it be that, well, if that's what he's talking about, then yeah, you're right. But it's possible that he was referring to uh, maybe what would be regarded as an esteemed title. And that's a worthy consideration. And we recognize if we're students of the Old Testament, we are. We're pressing through Old Testament survey right now. And you remember things like Moses was Yahweh's servant. That wasn't just a general statement of fact. That was a, an identification and an esteemed one at that. And Moses passes off the scene. What is Joshua? The mantle he picks up. Joshua was Yahweh's servant. We later see David was Yahweh's servant. Prophets were at times expressed as Yahweh's servant. So might that not be what Paul's expressing here? Well, that's a reasonable question, and my response would be to ask if Paul uses the same term in the book, and if so, how? Does he, does he speak to slave anywhere else? And that's not necessarily the magic key, but it would certainly be insightful, maybe helpful to us as well, especially if we're mindful of the tone, trajectory, name of the book. And with this in view, our attention would be directed to chapter 2, verse 7 of Philippians, where he states regarding Christ, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave. Christ humbled himself by taking the form of a slave. I think Paul's intentions are clear. This is a humble identity in which one's ambitions, thoughts, actions, and words are expressed with a view to the Lord and not oneself. And I believe that he chose such an identity to establish a clear tone at the outset of this letter. 
one of humble submission and joyful obedience. A humble submission and joyful obedience that when expressed in concert with others produces the unity of mind that befits those in gospel fellowship. So again, how are we going to get to where he's directing us? How are we going to have that unity of mind? How are we going to do so with joy when we walk in concert together as humble, joyful slaves of Christ? And with this, we have slaves writing to saints. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi to the saints, or to the holy ones. The term used to describe the recipients of this letter, uh, the believers in Philippi, is hagios, a term that's used 233 times in the New Testament, and 74 ti- or 74% of its usages are commonly translated as holy, or separated. Separated in what regard? Separated from the world, and separated to God. So again, holy. Than that which is separated from the world and to God. 26% of its usages are commonly translated saint or saints or a holy people. And when we use the term saint, that's exactly what it means. It's a holy people. Now, Paul was not addressing a unique category of believers here. It wasn't that, oh, well, the Philippians, he found this community of holy people, like some kind of monastery trapped in Macedonia. No, Paul was not addressing a unique category of believers. There was no special category of those uniquely faithful or consecrated to God. No, Paul was addressing all the believers in Philippi as all indeed are a holy people. All are saints. But just as his own identity was expressed with a necessary association to Christ, so also was theirs. These were saints in Christ Jesus as he was the source, the identity, the means, and even necessity of their holiness. So in Christ, they had been set apart from the world and set apart to God. That's what a holy people is. That's what saints are. That's your shared identity. Now, your Old Testament reading again will help us here. And specifically, your reading and studies should help you appreciate this matter as you think back to the temple vessels There's a whole range of vessels that were crafted by skillful men and often overlaid with gold and set apart. They were were at one point in time potentially common, but then they were made holy. They were no longer for common use, and they most certainly were not for profane use. They were solely tools for the worship of God. And so it is that Paul was communicating something, that in Christ they've been set apart for the glory of God. Their use or purpose, as it were, was not ambiguous. And so it is with all who are in Christ. You've been set apart, and your use or purpose is not ambiguous. It's no longer for the common or for the profane. It's for service and submission to God. And I would argue that a fellowship of persons who have been set apart from this world and to God would naturally be expected to be unified in their mind and their thinking, and therefore also in their words and their actions. So if you or a unified body set apart to service to God and submission to God, then walking in union of heart, union of mind, union of thought would be a natural conclusion. I think Paul's building here, I think he's setting a tone, a trajectory. So let's continue on. But first, actually, let's maybe pause to ask a question, not necessarily who's at the door. That'd be a reasonable question. (laughs) But maybe in view of the text... 
what would be a reasonable question. Might not Paul be doing something more than just introducing author and audience? Might he be doing something more than just introducing author and audience? Because again, we could just say, well, you've introduced the book in terms of structure and layout. Now Paul's introducing, uh, giving the introduction proper, who the author was, who the audience was, and are we asking too much of it? Well, that's a reasonable, it's a good question, because it would certainly make this a much more abbreviated message when we get much further in the text. But I believe he's doing something more than that. I believe that a slave of Christ engaging saints in Christ is communicating something. He was not asking what sort of people ought you to be or might even prefer to be, but was reminding them what kind of people they were and therefore must be. And this identity was not unique to Paul's engagement of the Philippians. Rather, we see believers consistently being identified as saints. And I believe that the first New Testament application of the term isn't necessarily what you would expect it to be, but it was in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27. The, the term saints or holy ones was actually used for believers at the time of Christ's crucifixion. Matthew 27, 52 to 53. And we recognize this is a, a title, an identity that has been carried over for God's people from the old to the present as well. Matthew 27, 52 to 53. And the tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints. How might we also read that? Many bodies of the holy ones who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs. And after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now, in addition to this being the first such usage of the term in the New Testament, I want to point out once more the nature of hagios as it is actually used twice here. Once for the risen believers, the saints, the holy ones, and once for Jerusalem, the holy city. And I draw that out because I want you to see that there's not a, a distinction in how we're using the term holy. It's applied to the city of Jerusalem. It's the holy city. It's applied to God's people. It's the holy people, a people set apart for God and his purposes. Next, we can skip to Acts chapter 9, where we're reminded that tragically Saul had a reputation of pursuing and persecuting Christians who were referenced to by Ananias in his wrestling and prayer as saints. You've got to remember, we, it's not till later that the believing, the, those who believed in the resurrected Christ would be called or identified as Christians. And so what's a natural identification? Saints, holy ones, those who have been set apart from this world and to God. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. Again, it wasn't the special category of persons. He's not even necessarily referring to the people that were resurrected at the time of Jesus' death. He's talking about the church, the saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Again, it was the saints who were the believing community in Jerusalem, and the saints are those who call on Christ's name. Later, having come to faith himself and serving as the apostle of the Gentiles, Paul opens his letter to the Romans with, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, holy ones, set apart, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, the beloved of God, the believing community, they are saints, holy ones who have been set apart. A matter affirmed again and again throughout his introductions, but we see it once more, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, called as saints, with all who in every place call in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Again, church at Corinth had a lot of struggles, but their identification in Christ made them and identified them as saints, those who have been set apart from this world to God. 
And shortly after this, in chapter 3, we see this matter is pressed in the application of obedience or conduct of becoming a holy people. So 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 to 17. Do you not know that you are a sanctuary of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the sanctuary of God, God will destroy him, for the sanctuary of God is holy. And that is what you are. He's saying you're a holy people. You need to conduct and walk and live in such a way. Now let's press in a little bit more on this conduct of becoming, uh, uh, excuse me, of saints and, and the, the term or the work of sanctification, of increasing in one's holiness. Ephesians chapter 5, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved us and gave himself up for us. An offering and a sacrifice to God is a fragrant aroma. But sexual immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints or as proper among holy people. Nor filthiness and foolishness talk, or no foolish talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no one, no one sexually, sexually immoral or impure or, or greedy who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Ephesians 5, 1 through 5. And so we can pause here and say, well, that's not just things that are expected for some people. It's expected for holy people. Well, who are the holy people? It's those who are obedient in Christ, who are obedient in Christ. They're slaves of Christ. Well, who's that? They're the ones who call upon the name of the Lord. They're believers. Holy people. And First Peter, we pick this up as well, even more overt and more emphatic, as it were. First Peter 1, 15 to 16. As obedient children, not being conformed to the former lust, which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your conduct. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And then, finally, 2 Peter chapter 3. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy or separated conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens burning will be destroyed and the elements will melt with intense heat. 2 Peter 3, 11 and 12. And so it is with holiness. It is not a challenging matter to understand. There's going to be things in the scriptures that you're going to struggle to understand, things that you're going to try to, to, to find. Where's the continuity or how does it develop or how ought to I think about it? It's not complicated. It's not challenging to understand. It's just challenging to consistently put to action. But such is the expected nature of the saint, of the holy ones. And some might be drawn to a conclusion that, well, I am no saint, but I love Jesus. A good southerner probably would Maybe bumper sticker, maybe, maybe you're going to go peel it off during break time. But I ain't no saint, but I love Jesus. Well, that is a dangerous conclusion, one that will not only forfeit necessary ground to secure the unity of mind in the Lord that Paul will press us to in this letter, but in this you've created a non-existent category of what is the nature and identity of a Christian. You have slid between the cracks that cannot exist when Paul says all here. He speaks of all the saints because it constitutes all the believers. Now, I've been reading J.C. Ryle's book, Holiness. So you might think, well, naturally you're going to draw from it, and of course so. So we've been reading, uh, a number of us, a few of the young men, we've been reading from through J.C. Ryle's book, Holiness, and he speaks to like matters quite clearly. It's framed with a historical context in terms of his own time. You can see that, and you can... Uh, work with that. It's not a problem. And it's an extended quote, but I believe his words to be especially helpful in this matter. So let's read through that just very quickly. He states, there is unquestionably nothing new in this teaching. 
It is well known that Romish writers often maintain that the church is divided into three classes, sinners, penitents, and saints. The modern teachers of this day who tell us that professing Christians are of three sorts, the unconverted, the converted, and the partakers of the higher life of complete consecration appear to me to occupy very much the same ground. But whether the idea be old or new, Romish or English, I am utterly unable to see that it has any warrant of Scripture. The Word of God always speaks of two great divisions of mankind and two only. It speaks of the living and the dead in sin, the believer and the unbeliever, the converted and the unconverted, the travelers and the narrow way and the travelers and the broad, the wise and the foolish, the children of God and the children of the devil. Within each of these two great classes, there are doubtless various measures of sin and of grace, but it is only the difference between the higher and lower end of an inclined plane. Between these two great classes, there is an enormous gulf. They are as distinct as life and death, light and darkness, heaven and hell. But of a division into three classes, the word of God says nothing at all. So what does the word of God say? Well, plainly, Paul expressed the identity of the Philippian believers as intentionally as he did his own, and both of them were wholly bound up in Christ. Paul and Timothy Slaves of Christ Jesus. The believing community at Philippi, saints in Christ Jesus. So you have a man who has yielded the totality of his life in service to the Lord, writing to a people wholly consecrated or set apart to the Lord. And in this, we're not speaking to ideals. We're speaking to identities. Identities that we share with both parties. And we must understand this, that it is the slaves and saints who can correspond with such rich measures of great joy and who can be persuaded as friends to walk in unity of mind. That's what he's doing in this book. So again, it is the slaves and saints who can correspond with such rich measures of great joy and can be persuaded as friends to walk in unity of mind all impossible if not for those critical qualifications of of Christ Jesus and in Christ Jesus. Now, when I began this morning, I stated that when we finish today, and we will finish today, that I hoped we would better appreciate not only how Paul begins his introduction, but also the two identities that shaped both the author and his readers, that they are just as fit to shape us in our pursuit of joyful unity of mind in the Lord. And that's still my objective. So I'm going to heed the counsel that Denise offered me before retiring for the night. She implored me, do not go too long, especially if you're going to be talking about church leadership. So, while conflicted, I've severely reduced my engagement in this next matter. And if you know me well, you probably would not be surprised that some of my favorite uninspired books have been Biblical Eldership, The Reformed Pastor, and The Shepherd Leader. I, that's just, that's where my heart is drawn. And so I talk about things like pastoral ministry, not because of occupational interest, but out of conviction and affection for Christ and his church. And drawn here a bit, because what do we see? We see Paul introduces something quite striking. You might think, well, that's not especially striking, but walk with me for a moment. Quite striking regarding the matter of church leadership as he speaks to the two offices of overseers and deacons. And again, you might think, What's the big deal regarding what would appear to be a passing formality of introduction? The big deal is that he does this nowhere else. Nowhere else. 
And for that matter, the only time we see the two offices discussed together are in 1 Timothy 3, where he writes of their respective qualifications. But that's the only time they're coupled together, and not again, not even in Titus 1, where he again speaks to the matter of elder qualifications. So, why does Paul insert an overt engagement of the leadership here? We don't know. He doesn't engage them, again, for the duration of the book and provides no special command or commentary here. And so we have some matters that we can reasonably explore as as potential possibilities in view of the larger flow of the book and in view of the the context and view of the development here. And so we can entertain those. And by entertain, I don't mean silly entertainment, but uh, introduce them to the the thinking process and consider their value, as it were. So some some ideas, some proposals might be that perhaps they, the leadership, the, the overseers and deacons, had a role in the fellowship of giving and receiving as we observe in other like context. And so this was a polite or a proper acknowledgement of them here. So again, we recognize that there were times that the church gave to needy churches, to other believers. Paul was participating in this a number of times. We see that in Acts, we see it in First Corinthians, we see it in Romans. And the leadership had a very clear role and responsibility in that. And so, so maybe there's that formality of, of recognition that you've, you've engaged in this work, this, this fellowship of giving and receiving. Perhaps it was in view of the strong emphasis on examples woven throughout the letter, gently reminding them to take note as they were to be exemplary among the flock. So when Paul says constantly, follow my example, look to the example of Epaphroditus, look to Timothy, certainly look to Christ, maybe he's also gently provoking them to you also, overseers and deacons, who by the nature of your qualification are be exemplary, take note, be exemplary. Perhaps it was because while this was a good church, the matter of believers maturing in their unity of mind is a challenging path, and and leadership must have some ownership of this work. So again, he doesn't overtly rebuke them. He doesn't overtly give precise instruction. He just directs them, encourages them, persuades and dissuades. And so perhaps he wants the leadership to have some buy-in and some investment in this. But we just do not know. But all those possibilities are reasonable for us to keep in mind as we work through this letter together. So what do we know regarding such matters? Well, we know that when we last left Philippi in Acts 16, it was a newly established fellowship, having some measure of membership meeting in Lydia's house. How many believers were part of the fellowship? We don't know. It would be reasonable to conclude that it included Lydia and her family, who not only came to faith, but were hosting the fellowship when the church was established. Uh, We reasonably conclude the jailer and his family, who all came to faith, were present and part of the church, and seemingly others, likely persons who were already participating in the prayer meetings and those who had come to faith through the testimony of these known believers. We also know that years have now passed, and Paul writes to a well-established body one now led by overseers and served by deacons. So that's our point of connection. We see a church that's maturing, a church that's progressing, and now it's gone from a riverbank to a house church to now a body of believers, a fellowship that's being cared for and overseen by overseers and served by deacons. A process that does not reflect an inevitability, inevitability, there we go, so much as an expectation, an expectation of maturity and faithfulness reflected and the establishing of leadership. Now, I state it this way because it would have been a curiously 
immature church to have continued on for some years without leadership. And it would have been irresponsible place for Paul to have left them and others to leave them without proper leadership. Even as far back as the first missionary journey, which preceded his trip to Philippi, which was in the second missionary journey, we see this work underway. Acts chapter 14, verses 20, or verse 23. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. It was important at the very outset to establish leadership. We see this um, also, the work that Paul expected for Titus to continue in as well. Titus 1.5, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. So this was important. Paul's leaving Titus behind for this reason. Make sure that leadership's established in these local churches. So, well, we have some reasonable things we can consider as to why this unique attention to the leadership and introducing the letter I would also come to back to this being a reflection of their maturity. A maturity that would not be, or excuse me, a maturity that would be expected, but not inevitable. In stating this, perhaps two things come to mind. What, what do we do with um, the fact there's a lot of strong women in Philippi? And, and how do we think about deacons? And you're talking about the maturity of the church, and you can definitely talk about elders and overseers and, um, and pastors, all synonymous terms, but we don't have deacons. Are we a mature church? We've been around for five years now. Well, let's consider these matters. Again, namely the strong women of Philippi and or the place of deacons in the leadership of a local church. And we're going to give, um, so let's first give our attention to Lydia. Let's first give our attention to Lydia, who, you know, that she was the first documented convert to Christ in Europe. That's pretty exceptional. We think of Europe, and that's our heritage and history for a lot of us in terms of that's a point of identification. We think of Europe as nations that can be visited and churches established. And churches so old, they've not, they're just buildings and empty hollow places now. But she was the very first convert to Christ in Europe, first documented one. And as such, played an important role in what would soon become the Church of Philippi. She was distinguished. She was a distinguished woman. And taking note of this, Charles Erdman stated, quote, she stands in the front rank of that great army of women who through all the centuries have furthered the preaching of the gospel by their hospitality, their sympathy, and their gifts. And to this, I would add their prayers. It was Lydia who was giving her time and attention to the work of prayer that first introduced her to the gospel and undoubtedly made her continued service of unique value as well. We also see the two women that Paul is concerned to see brought into a proper relationship of unity in Christ. Women that he described in a unique way who have contended together alongside of him in the gospel. Remember that term for contend it appears twice. Once in the first opening command, and then the second time to describe these two ladies. An elevated term, a term that he says they didn't just contend, they're not contending with one another, they contended with me for the benefit and advancement of the gospel. That is an esteemed identity. So even for a, from a limited vantage point, we could reasonably conclude that Philippi started and produced mature and faithful women who served Christ well. However, they were not among those addressed as overseers or deacons. And in another context, we can more properly unpack the nature of the qualifications of those offices, noting that overseers are synonymous with elders and pastors, and that this office and that of deacon are restricted to men who meet the qualifications provided in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. And I share all this because I wanted to remind you that we need not restrict our perceptions of usefulness and commendable service to precise leadership roles. Now, 
their leadership roles to be had, a matter that I care very deeply about. And with them, a proper care of the church is to be applied. But the scope of service and value goes beyond the prescribed roles that will and should be filled for the leading, the shepherding, and equipping of the church. Because strong and faithful saints have a high charge in their responsibility, in the range of their responsibilities and opportunities. And so look to the examples like those of the named saints in Philippi, which would include Lydia, Epaphroditus, Yodia, Syntyche, and Clement. Men and women, they were faithful servants and slaves and saints in Christ Jesus because they were in this number. Uh, and again, whether or not any of them were in this number of overseers and deacons or, or not, that's not the issue. They had an indispensable role to play as saints and slaves of Christ Jesus who contended together for the faith of the gospel. And do not lose sight of that critical element together or with unity which is what Paul desired for this church and sought to see restored when it frayed or strift, uh, strayed from or they struggled with it. So that's an important little bit of a sidebar. But he introduced leadership, so I think it was worthy enough to draw our attention to it. Now, what about this matter of deacons? If we're going to argue that was a reflection of their maturity, that we're rejoicing that they went from Acts chapter 16, Riverbank, house church, to now leadership and expression of overseers and deacons, how do we understand that role of deacons? We've already established the role of elder was indispensable in terms of they went and planted churches, they established elders. Titus, you stay, establish elders. But what of deacons? Well, we can plainly see that in addition to addressing overseers, Paul addressed the deacons of Philippi and the presence of this office would appear again to reflect a church whose growth had produced a range of needs that would occupy the elders' attention in such a manner as to draw them away from the primary matters of service. It's really the prototype that we have for the deacons. The, the church grew and matured and expanded in such a way that the, the elders were being obstructed, not in a bad or terrible sense, but taken away from their primary work of praying, studying, and declaring the truths of the Scripture. And when that was challenged, again, not in some bad way, but when it was pressed on them, to do things that were beyond the scope of their primary focus, you have the introduction of the, really the prototype for the deacon service. And so there were those who had been set apart for service in a way that was distinct from the broader service of the local fellowship, as theirs too was a spiritual office with restrictive qualifications, restrictive qualifications that would identify men who would come alongside the elders and assist them in the larger work of the ministry so as to free them to focus on their responsibilities. So, while well, all within the fellowship serve in some capacity, and in this broader sense are themselves deacons or servants, not all be set apart for the office of deacon, a work designed to come alongside the elders and the care of the church body, a need that we have not come to in the life of our local fellowship as broader matters of service have not challenged or taxed the elders' capacity to give their attention to praying, teaching, and providing shepherding care. But should that day come, and numbers and growth inevitably push you that way, then we'll too need to seek out qualified men to participate in this work. And when someone says, ah, I remember Grace Bible Church from the, the hotel to the home to the church to the school to the driveway to the church building, oh my, and look, it's a bunch of saints and slaves walking in unity together and in God's kindness, he's giving them those who will provide an, a, an extra a different measure of care but the church is being faithful within the service of unified service to one another as well. Now, there's much more that could be said, but not necessarily it needs to be said right now, and don't hold me to that. I may never say that again. 
With that being said, I want to give a final exhortation to you, a final a charge to a faithful local fellowship that is doing well but could always do better. Remember, that was the nature of the Philippian church. They were doing well, but they could always do better. And that's exactly where I see you. You're doing well, but we could do better. And how? How might we do better today? Perhaps by embracing the joyful weight of being faithful slaves and saints of Christ Jesus. By allowing ourselves and submitting ourselves to being governed by separated lives under the lordship of Christ. Being the kind of people that naturally produce joy and thanksgiving and that are ready to do the hard work of pursuing gospel unity. And by musing over the fact that while Paul peppered a range of titles and identities all throughout this letter, he called them brothers, beloved, children of God, fellow workers, soldiers, messengers, minister, joy, and crown. And yet in this introduction, which is of value and communicates something, he only uses two. Slaves and saints. Slaves and saints of Christ. Identities that we would do well to pursue for ourselves as they are befitting of those who are truly in Christ and they will serve us well in our pursuit of being unified in mind. Unified in mind with a view to our Lord. Again, as slaves of Christ Jesus and saints in Christ Jesus. A people that have brought ourselves under full submission to our Lord and that are set apart in our service and our walking and our growth together. I think that's a worthwhile ambition. I think that's a worthwhile introduction. I don't think he's just throwing terms around. I don't think he's just throwing them away so that he can kind of get to it, as it were. He could have just said, it's Paul writing the Philippians. Really have a lot of things that you make me joyful about and gotten on with it. But it was Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus, to the saints in Philippi to the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. You could use those terms interchangeably, couldn't we? Could have just said, Paul and Timothy, saints in Christ Jesus, to the slaves of Christ Jesus in Philippi. And I want you to think about that. I want you to wrestle with it. And let's see if we can't this week struggle with how can we be saints and slaves pursuing unity of mind to the glory of God. All right, let's pray. Lord, we think about our conversations with one another as friends. And sometimes they are fleeting and mundane and silly or just passing, and that's okay. That's part of the nature of the totality of friendship. It would be almost peculiar if every conversation had to have some precise objective. But we do speak to one another in an affectionate and a kind way. We're interested in one another's lives. We're interested in building into one another. We're interested in the, the care and the walk of one another. We're interested in maintaining unity. And we see this letter here, which is uh, so very plainly an expression of friendship. What a, what a magnificent thing to be able to say as, the, as Philippian believers, that the apostle Paul, the, the one who was set apart by God for, to, to go to the Gentiles and that uh, was the uh, quintessential church planting missionary, he wrote to us as friends. But in so doing, he reminded them that he and Timothy, really all of them, all of us, are slaves of Christ Jesus. It's not a, a term that we always like, but how could we not rejoice and celebrate and endorse it and embrace it in that context? You don't have a better master. You don't have a better Lord. We don't have someone that we ought to follow and obey and give the whole and totality of our lives to than, than Christ himself who also, in 
took on the form of a slave, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that he would redeem a people for himself, a people that he would be Lord of, a people that, as First Peter, or as Peter writes in First Peter 5, that he would be the good shepherd, the, the great shepherd, the, the chief shepherd of the flock. And also, he redeemed us to be holy. And Paul didn't address them as just a, comp- a, a casual company. He, he identified them as a holy people, people that have been set apart. And such is the nature of the identity of all of us who are in Christ. And so, Lord, would you help us to walk in such a manner as slaves and saints, not picking which title we prefer, but seeing them together, slaves and saints, a harmonious relationship that expresses our identity in Christ. And Lord, we do thank you also that while we're going to struggle a little bit to try to discern that unique attention that he gave to the overseers and deacons, it's nevertheless a reminder, an expression of your care for your church. You haven't left them as orphans. You've given your spirit, but you've also provided uh, men who are having to meet very clear qualifications and expectations to, to care for your church, tangible expressions, extensions of your care. And so we thank you for that, and we ask that you would help us who, who have such roles to fulfill them in faithfulness, to be exemplary as Paul and Timothy, Epaphroditus, and others were, to direct this local body, this local fellowship, to a unity of mind in Christ. Again, most easily accomplished and joyfully done if we'll submit first as slaves and saints. And to that end, we ask that you'd be our help, and in such, you would be exalted. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.